Hello again, everyone, wherever you may be, and welcome to the 158th edition of KHOI Community Radio's Capital Week, your window on the world of Iowa politics, where we explore and analyze who's been making news in and around the state capitol, what that news is, and what it all means. We are glad you're with us. I'm Dennis Hart, joined as always by my partner in politics, Laura Bellin of the blog site Bleeding Heartland. Welcome, Laura. Good to be here, Dennis. Laura, I am reporting tonight from Disney World in Orlando, Florida. It has been a fun few days, but we have plenty to discuss tonight. So here we go. No more Mickey Mousing around here. We're going to go right into the show. All right. State legislature, third week last week, and there was so much going on. Let's start out with Iowa Secretary of State Paul Pate filing a bill barring a 14th Amendment challenge to former President Donald Trump. And I should say that I had not heard of anyone in Iowa trying to gather force for a 14th Amendment challenge to get Donald Trump off the ballot. So I don't know how impactful this bill will be. I think the U.S. Supreme Court is probably going to rule on this uh, before this would come into play. But this would limit the grounds on which somebody could challenge an Iowa federal candidate, not just the president, but other candidates for federal office in Iowa. So it would just be based on the person's residency, citizenship and problems with their petitions. The former president has faced challenges to his candidacy in several states, including Colorado and Maine, thus the need for the U.S. Supreme Court to step in and definitively decide this. Yes. And like I said, I don't think that this bill really changes the state of play at all, but it's it's something it's more about cleaning up the Iowa code. All right. This afternoon, today, Monday. Some Iowa lawmakers renewed a push to bring back the death penalty in Iowa. Iowa abolished it in 1965, but lawmakers have repeatedly drafted proposals to bring it back. And here we go again. So every time one of these bills comes back, and there was one that was debated in a Senate committee last year, it it always starts in a very narrow, targeted way. And they usually try to pick some very small subset of heinous crimes. So last year's death penalty bill would allow the death penalty in cases where somebody had kidnapped a child, sexually assaulted a child, and murdered a child. This bill is different. This is a, this would reinstate the death penalty in cases where somebody had killed a law enforcement uh, officer, and there would be certain other contingencies in the bill, like the person couldn't be mentally ill, they couldn't have been under age 18 when they committed the crime, and so on. And I mean, part of this a little bit, we haven't used this phrase yet this year, Dennis, it's a little bit of kabuki theater, because we already know from last year, and nothing seems to have changed this year, that in the Iowa House, a death penalty bill is not going to get any traction. It's not going to move through the Judiciary Committee or the Public Safety Committee. And yet in the Senate, there is a desire to get one of these bills through committee and possibly be debated on the floor. So the Senate, they keep drafting different versions of a bill that would bring back the death penalty in a very narrow way. Of course, the idea being that once it's on the books in Iowa, they would then later go in an amendment, amended in subsequent years to try to expand the number of crimes that could lead to a death penalty sentence. We are indeed an educational broadcast, as you know, Laura. We are widely known for that, and I should identify Kabuki Theater as a classical form of Japanese theater mixing dramatic performance with traditional dance. Laura, that seems to perfectly apply to what we're talking about. Well, sometimes in a legislature, some bills are advanced because there's a genuine desire to pass them. And sometimes there's a desire to be seen as supporting this kind of a bill. And when I said kabuki theater, I think that everybody knows in both chambers that this is not going to become law. But there are some people in the upper chamber who find it advantageous to debate this every year. Exactly. Look, you don't need to watch PBS. You can listen to us every Monday night live at this hour. All right. A bill that made headlines 
last week, a bill that would remove gender ID from the Iowa Civil Rights Act. House Republicans have scheduled a hearing for this week. This is a potential biggie and certainly, certainly controversial. So I want to say that there have been bills introduced along this line before. So Iowa added sexual orientation and gender identity to the Iowa Civil Rights Act in 2007. That was the first year of a Democratic trifecta. And for a number of years, there have been a handful of Republican legislators who have introduced bills that would either completely remove or undermine in some way the gender identity protections in the Civil Rights Act. What has changed this year is that this bill is getting a subcommittee hearing. That has not happened before in any of these bills. And so, and the the chair of the Judiciary Committee, Stephen Holt, he has specifically buried these bills in the past, not assigned them to a subcommittee. And this year, he seems very committed to passing something like this. He wrote an op-ed that the Des Moines Register published online today, January 29th, where he talked about why he thinks there's a need for this. And so it, it would redefine gender dysphoria as a disability. So there would be some protections for people who have a disability, but there would no longer be gender identity protections. So that would mean that people who are transgender or non-binary would not be protected in employment, housing, education, and public accommodations. It would make Iowa the first state to remove transgender people from their civil rights code. Yes. And this is something that in the past, also the business community has very strongly opposed bills like this in the past. But I looked and I just checked again today. None of the business lobby groups that have registered against previous year's bills along these lines are lobbying against this one, at least not publicly. So uh, it it is a, a broad coalition opposing the bill, including many groups representing marginalized communities, of course, the LGBTQ advocacy groups, the ACLU of Iowa, and more than a dozen groups that are opposed to this bill, but not the business lobby groups that have opposed similar legislation in the past. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me that there is more momentum to get this thing done. Now, that's not to say that it will definitely advance through committee and, and become and the Iowa House itself. But certainly there is much more momentum for this bill than we've ever seen since I've been covering the Iowa legislature. A subcommittee on this is set for this coming Wednesday, January 31st at noon. And I believe you are going to be there. Absolutely. It is on my calendar. We'll talk about it next Monday night. All right, abortion. It's always an issue in the Iowa legislature. And last week, a House bill was talked about that would effectively ban all medication abortion. Yeah, so this one would be, technically, it's not a ban, but the certification process that it would create for dispensing the medication that's used to terminate pregnancies in the early stages, it would be very cumbersome and it would be difficult. And many providers and pharmacists would not want to be part of this program. So I should say that medication abortion is now how more than half of all abortions occur in Iowa and nationally. Medication abortion can be used up to about 10 weeks of pregnancy. And uh, many, it's not appropriate for every situation, but many women prefer that to a surgical or procedural abortion. And last week, some Senate lawmakers advanced a bill that would let almost all health care providers deny health care services to parties for any reason. And this one is really strongly opposed by the medical community. I mean, basically every 
interest group that represents healthcare providers, public health, nurses, medical society. They are very much against this bill. And it is something that it advanced over the objection of the Democrat who is on the subcommittee. I have not seen whether there is interest in this kind of bill in the House. This is so far advancing in the Senate. So we'll see in the House. Uh, one of the House Democratic lawmakers, Austin Baith, is a doctor himself. And he was explaining some of the problems that this would cause. For instance, let's say if somebody had a moral objection to suicide and then they were in an emergency room and somebody came in who had survived a suicide attempt and the, and the doctor might not want to treat that person, for instance. I mean, there would just be all kinds of situations that it would be very problematic and the medical societies are very against this bill. Another Senate bill would forbid HPV vaccine given without parents' consent. So this is a little bit paradoxical because in Iowa, the age of consent to have sex is 16. So 16 and 17-year-olds can engage in sexual activity and they don't need their parents' permission. And so again, this is another bill where the healthcare providers, everybody from the, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists to the American Academy of Pediatrics and the nurses, they don't support this bill because the HPV vaccine is most effective if people have it before they become sexually active. So you really want if for anyone who's sexually active, if they're 16 or 17 year olds, you want them to be able to get this vaccine. And that is the issue with the bill. Of course, it, we have seen in recent years, a, a lot of legislation aimed at vaccination. Generally, it started to be focused on the COVID-19 vaccines, but generally within the Republican Party, there's a strong anti-vaccine movement. And we're seeing that expressed now with this bill. And we should say, pause a little bit and say, these are not bills that have been enacted into law. They've had hearings or they're going to have hearings. Our job on Capitol Week is to tell you what's been introduced, what's being talked about, because some of these will make it through and we'll be following this week by week here on Capitol Week. Another bill, and this is kind of an administrative thing, would let anti-abortion centers ditch third-party administrators. Why is this important? So this is a bill that it, it, this is almost two years old now that the Iowa legislature passed funding that would create something that's called the mom's program, more options for maternal support. The idea was to fund uh, crisis pregnancy centers. That These are centers that are not technically medical clinics. Uh, they provide some kind of support services. And, they, and the main thing is they discourage pregnant people from getting abortions. And yet they, even though this was passed almost two years ago, the program really hasn't gotten off the ground because the state has had two failed rounds of trying to find some organization to be the administrator. So this bill would allow the State Department of Health and Human Services to administer the program itself without having a third party administrator. And you might ask, why didn't they set it up that way in the first place? I think the idea was that it would be a pretty big administrative burden to manage this program. So I guess we'll see how the state is able to, to manage it. I wanted to add to what you said earlier. Right now at this stage in the legislative session, bills are just moving through subcommittee and committee. So we really haven't had floor debate in the Iowa House and Senate on any bills yet. It's just too early. That's right. And up next for this particular bill we were just talking about is a hearing to the full House and Human Services Committee. All right. Another bill last week would curtail anonymous environmental complaints. And I think we know where this is going and why it's been brought. Well, I looked at this bill. So this would be for people who report potential violations 
to the Department of Natural Resources, their name would have to be on file. And of course, that would discourage a lot of people from reporting because you can imagine, let's say in rural Iowa, you might be in a position where you were reporting your neighbors or people, it might be very easy for people to know where you live. So it, it's interesting because we've seen a lot of different approaches to confidentiality, depending on what the issue is. Remember last year, there was that big sweeping education bill, Senate file 496. And one of the provisions of that said school districts would not be able to release the names of people who requested that library books or other materials could be removed. Those would have to be kept secret and confidential. And now we have the opposite kind of bill that people who register a complaint for a possible environmental violation, their identity could not be kept secret. Right. A bill obviously aimed, as you say, at uh, trying to discourage whistleblowers. Yes. And I noticed I looked at the lobbyist declarations because, you know, me always look at the lobbyist declarations. No group, none of the agriculture groups are registered in favor of this bill. This was introduced by the Iowa Senate Republican Annette Sweeney. And uh, officially, no one is supporting it. But it certainly seems like a bill that would be supported by some farm groups. All right. Another bill would require the use of something called E-Verify, E-Verify to check workers' immigration status. Yes. And this was interesting because you had, again, at the subcommittee, the, for, according to the published reports, this was a subcommittee I wasn't able to attend, that both the business groups and groups representing, advocacy groups representing immigrants are very opposed to this bill. And the Chamber of Commerce type groups, they said, look, this program just doesn't work very well. Unfortunately, they get a lot of false positives of people, especially teenagers who might not be in the system yet. And it's very problematic if you're trying to get a job and this flags you as being an undocumented immigrant, it can be a real barrier to try to get that flag removed. And meanwhile, you wouldn't be able to work. So they were saying this system, the, the employers were saying, we wouldn't mind if this were an accurate system, but unfortunately it doesn't always work. Uh, the subcommittee, the Republicans on the subcommittee did vote to advance it anyway, so it will go to the committee. And yet another bill uh, would delve into something that's in the news frequently because the Des Moines Register has a beat reporter on this, a bill to let cameras into nursing homes, nursing home abuse is being widely reported on the in the register now, and this bill would let cameras into those homes. Well, it would, but again, it, this would be, first of all, the resident, the nursing home resident or their family would have to pay for the camera. So it wouldn't be something that would be widely available, and it would only be allowed that the, if there was a shared room, the roommate would have to agree to the use of the camera. And I think that it wouldn't, the footage wouldn't be archived, so it would be something like a live stream. So you can imagine that family members, I mean, they probably wouldn't be glued to their screen 24 hours a day looking to see what was happening. So uh, they, it, it seems that this is a, maybe seen as a substitute for having a better inspection regime, regime in nursing homes, but I don't know that it's going to really solve the issue of nursing home abuses. And there was a bill requiring age verification for viewing online pornography. We do not believe there's any connection between nursing home abuse and online pornography. These are two separate bills, but this one, uh, very interesting. Well, and there are multiple bills on this, so I'm not sure which one is going to be the one that ends up getting traction. There was some discussion during the subcommittee on this bill that uh, maybe the language they need to work on a little bit more because it seemed to be targeting social media platforms more and there could be uh, there could be things that get swept up in this that is not the intention of the bill. Of course, it, technology is always a moving target, and it's really difficult to legislate related to technology because websites uh, move so quickly. So I, I'm not sure. Like I said, I know that there are multiple bills introduced on this subject, and I think the legislature is going to end up passing one of them, but it just may not be this one. 
It is 15 minutes and 20 seconds after the hour, wherever you're listening to us, and you are in tune with KHUI Radio's Capital Week, your one-stop source for everything political going on in Iowa. I'm Dennis Hart with Laura Bellin, and we have been here every week at this hour for the past three years to talk about politics with an Iowa flavor, and we're going to continue tonight. All right, let's talk education now. We've talked about almost everything else. A bill to limit, Laura, how language and reading can be taught in schools. So we know from research that it's really important for kids to be proficient in reading by the third grade. That kids, if they're not able to read at grade level by third grade, that they, they fall further and further behind. So this bill is targeting that issue. I mean, within the education community, there were some concerns expressed because and I'm not an expert on this, obviously, but certain phonics versus other approaches, uh, the a three queuing system. And some of the educators were saying, look, not there's no one size fits all way to teach reading that works for every kid. So maybe maybe the state government doesn't want to be this prescriptive uh, on telling school districts and teachers exactly how they want to teach. But there certainly is some desire in the legislature to do something to help bring up reading scores. I'm not sure whether this bill is really going to have enough traction to make it to the governor's desk. We have plenty more to talk about in terms of education. Another Senate bill would give school districts the right to hire religious chaplains. Well, I watched the subcommittee last week, and this was a very contentious discussion. So this is a com- there are companion bills in the House and Senate. The House is actually having a subcommittee tomorrow, that's January 30th, on the companion bill. And the idea is that school districts could hire chaplains. It's being presented as a support that could be a spiritual support. It could be almost a way to provide some kind of mental health services. Uh, but the people who are detractors of this bill, which includes most of the education groups, not just the Education Association but the the representatives of urban school districts, rural school dis- school districts, administrators, they're very concerned about having unlicensed chaplains in the in the the schools. It, the one point that was raised that even the Republican who chaired the Senate subcommittee who voted to advance the bill, he said he would support an amendment to it, deal with this point because chaplains are not mandatory reporters, and that could be problematic to have them working with kids in school. So uh, basically, the, the Democrat on the subcommittee, Sarah Trongariot, she did not vote to advance the bill. She said, if the issue, if we're worried about mental health in schools, let's fund schools, let's fund school counselors, let's fund the children's mental health system instead of letting unlicensed chaplains in to work with our kids. And she also said she believes the proposal could violate the U.S. Constitution on religious grounds. Yes. And actually, this was something somebody raised because the the way the bill is written, it is neutral. Of course, the groups that are supporting the bill generally are in the Christian orientation. But somebody did bring up at the subcommittee that the Satanic Temple organization has a very active chaplain program. And he said almost in a joking way, he said, hey, if you want to get Satanic chaplains in Iowa public schools, this would be the way to go about it. And who wouldn't want satanic chaplains in Iowa's public schools? All right. Another bill giving teachers new spending accounts. Yes. So this addresses the fact that the average teacher spends hundreds of dollars a year buying classroom materials, and that just comes right out of their pocket. So this would give teachers, depending on whether they were new or, or experienced a certain amount of money to spend on classroom supplies. Uh, the edu- Again, the concern expressed with this bill is that there wouldn't be any new dedicated funding for these accounts. This would just come out of the allocation that the school districts are already getting. And so uh, there, there is a concern that 
well, maybe school districts, maybe not every school district needs to have exactly the certain several hundred dollars of money in an account for every teacher. But if the state wants to do this, maybe they should have a, a new sort of spending authority. So that was why it didn't pass unanimously. It was a partisan vote in the subcommittee that advanced this bill. Here's a story that broke late last week, and I'm not sure it got all of the attention it should have, but it will. Iowa, as you know, has an educational savings account program providing public money for private school expenses. They approved it last year. So now the private school enrollment data was released late last week, and it is, to say the least, Laura, revealing. Yes, and it's not too surprising because we already kind of knew from the numbers, the preliminary numbers they released over the summer where this was going. But first of all, the overall number of participants close to just under 17,000 were able to enroll in some kind of private school and use the state funding. That's about $7,600 a year uh, to pay for private school tuition. Now, the key numbers about one of the key numbers was two thirds of these students receiving this funding already were attending private schools before this bill passed. About 12% had attended a, a public school previously and now were moving to a private school. And then the rest of them were new private school students entering kindergarten. So the, of course, the Democrats in the legislature who opposed the voucher bill from the beginning said these education savings accounts are basically just the state subsidizing families who already could afford to send their kids to private school, whereas the governor and the, some of her supporters in the legislature were saying this shows that families now have more options in Iowa. I want to say one thing about this enrollment data. Normally, the State Department of Education releases this data in mid-December, so a lot of people have been waiting for it for a long time. They said mid-December, then they said by the end of December, and of course, by the time it was released, we were almost at the end of January. Right. Now, it had been estimated that about 14,000 people would enroll in this program the first year, so the enrollment is greater. That means it's going to cost more money than anybody had anticipated, at least in the first year. Definitely. And we we knew it was going to cost more. We didn't know how much more. It's probably going to be about a little $20, 22000000 million more than what was appropriated. Remember, the first year, there are still income limits on this program. Families have to have up to 300% of the federal um, poverty level. Next year, it's going to be, the income limit is going to be higher, up to 400% of the poverty level. And then going beyond that, it's there's going to be no income limit at all. So the costs of this program are certainly going to increase. There is no, there is statistically, there's no way they could decrease. And as you say, we have talked about that and we predicted that would be the case a long time ago. Yes. I mean, people were predicting it even when the bill was going through the legislature very quickly last year. I mean, the Legislative Services Agency, they do a really good job estimating and projecting the best they can. But this, it was, it became clear quickly that the costs were going to vastly exceed what they estimated in their fiscal note. Yet another bill last week would let teenagers care for infants, toddlers, and others unsupervised at child care centers. Teenagers. So this is a follow-up to a bill that passed two years ago. So initially, this was in the 2022 session. It was something to address the child care workforce shortage. And they said, look, let's have more 16 and 17-year-olds able to work unsupervised, but only watching school-age children. So now 
that was already passed. So now this bill would uh, would expand it so that 16 or 17 year olds could be unsupervised and they could be caring for children under age five at child care centers. I mean, there is a little bit of a problem with this in that most 16 and 17 year olds are going to be going to school. And so during the school day, not clear how they would be watching these kids up to age five. But in any case, um, the legislative Democrats who have criticized the majority party's approach to this problem have said, look, we know what we really need to do is increase wages and increase support for these child care centers instead of continually lowering the, sta- lowering the standards of who can work in a child care center. And on this Monday afternoon, as we go live on Monday night, Iowa's Attorney General Brenna Byrd says she is joining 26 other states in supporting Texas's border defense barriers in this fight against the Biden administration. Yeah, so this is a complicated issue. The U.S. Supreme Court had basically ruled it was a split decision where they said that the federal government can go ahead and remove the razor wire and some of these barriers that have presented that have prevented asylum seekers from crossing. And Texas it seems to be trying to defy that order, and that uh, it it is pretty much splitting along partisan lines. I mean, the governors and the attorneys general around the country who are Republicans are basically supporting the state of Texas position. And on the flip side, uh, of course, the Democratic governors and AGs are not supporting this effort. I mean, the, the Constitution does say that the federal government has authority to enforce immigration policy. The the portion of the Constitution that Texas is relying on is something that part of the 10th Amendment that says that states can defend themselves if they are invaded um, with congressional approval. Of course, an invasion, it, as it was probably intended when the Constitution was adopted, that this was a time when it took months to travel to Washington. So they were probably thinking that literally, I mean, an invasion from a foreign government. Uh, but the state of Texas is saying that that the flow of undocumented immigrants across the southern border amounts to an invasion. And that's why Texas, in, in their view, has the authority to do this in defiance of the federal government. And quickly, the Des Moines Register reported that since Brenna Byrd, the state attorney general, ran for election by promising the Biden administration to see you in court, well, guess what? She has followed through. Yes, and she had asked the legislature for more funding to bring on more attorneys who were going to help her sue the federal government, and they approved that request, and she has followed through. I should say, and this was before we were doing the show, Dennis, but in 2018 and 2019, this was a really big issue in the legislature. They were threatening to cut the attorney general's funding because Tom Miller, the Democratic attorney general at the time, was joining a lot of lawsuits challenging Trump administration policies, and there was a view in the legislature that he should be spending his time working working for the benefit of Iowans and not suing the federal government. So, of course, the shoe is on the other foot now. The president is of a different party. The attorney general is of a different party. And so the legislature uh, doesn't have an issue with the attorney general suing the federal government frequently. We have about three and a half minutes left. Let's go down to the Rob Sand report that the state auditor put out last week about property taxes that Iowans pay. Yeah, so this is, he said that this was the first time that the state auditor's office had done this kind of a comprehensive review of property taxes. And it showed, and this is something that I think research has showed in other states as well, that people living in wealthy areas pay a lower percentage of property taxes uh, because their property is assessed at a higher 
rate, I mean, their property values are higher. And so uh, they can be taxed at a lower level. And then conversely, people who are living in lower income or socioeconomically disadvantaged areas, they can end up paying more in property taxes. So he was trying to highlight the inequities of the system. And then in fact, property taxes are regressive. It may seem to be almost like a flat tax because everybody let's living, say, in the city of Des Moines might pay the same property tax rate. But the reality is that people in communities that are wealthier are on average paying lower property taxes than the people in less wealthy communities. And quickly, a couple of other education things. A bill to require Iowa students to sing, yes, sing the national anthem every day. Yeah, so this was another one. It cleared a House subcommittee, two to one vote, party line vote. The Democrat Sue Cahill is a retired teacher herself, and she said this was going to cut into teaching time. This would require social studies classes to have uh, the students sing and, and the teacher where they would be singing at least one verse of the national anthem every single day. And then they would have to sing the whole national anthem at what are defined as patriotic events in the bill. So we'll see. I mean, it looks like this is headed for committee passage and probably a vote on the Iowa House floor. And this would only apply to public schools, not to private schools. That's right. Apparently, private school students, the the bill author didn't feel that it was necessary to apply that to private schools. Indeed. We need to make some time here because you made news last week and we've got about a minute and a half. You got credentialed by the state house. It became a major statewide story. Uh, The Des Moines Register played it very big. You were credentialed for the first time by the state house. Yes. So we had reported last week that I had just filed a lawsuit, the Institute for Free Speech, which is a nonpartisan organization based in Washington, had filed the suit on my behalf. And uh, this is after for five years, I'd been trying to get credentials in the Iowa House. And then less than five days after the suit was filed, the Iowa House chief clerk offered me credentials. So I was sitting in my new desk on the House press bench on Thursday for the first time. I was back there today. So uh, basically, um, they decided not to fight us. We were arguing that I had been denied credentials for viewpoint and content-based reasons. And in any case, uh, the state is not fighting that lawsuit. So we know, Laura, when you're not on this broadcast, we know exactly where you're going to be for the next few weeks and months. Yes. As I said, there's not a lot of floor debate going on, but certainly later in the session, when there, when some of these contentious bills are debated on the floor, I'll be able to cover those debates from a different vantage point as opposed to sitting in the public gallery or watching the live stream, which is what I've mostly done. So we're out of time, Laura. You have a great one. You too. Enjoy Disney World. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Let me let me just say this, uh, tell you what's coming up next week. You have been listening to Capital Week on KHY Community Radio. A reminder, that the views and opinions expressed here did not necessarily reflect the opinions of KHOI or its staff. Now, Laura and I are going to be back here next week at this same time, and we're going to be talking about everything interesting, important, or entertaining about politics, Iowa style, because that's what we do, and that's what we've done for the past three years. And next week, Laura, marks the start of our fourth year here on Capital Week. Who could have guessed it? It's so exciting, Dennis. I love it. All right. And next week, I'll be coming to you again live from Disney World in Orlando. It's a double win. You can't miss it. Join us. Until then, thank you so much for the privilege of your time. We appreciate it and we value it. Between now and then, let's all go ahead. What do you say? And have a safe, healthy, and happy week.